Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. This is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In a blog post, Dreamland author Sam Quinones wrote, The Purdue Pharma Company Instructional Materials pushed salespeople to expand the physician's definition of the appropriate patient to which opioids might be prescribed and to develop a specific plan for systematically moving physicians to the next level of prescribing. It's now clear the Purdue Pharma playbook was adopted by other pharmaceutical companies over the last 20 years. Today, we'll hear about one of those companies, Insys Therapeutics. Joining me to talk about that is Evan Hughes, who is the author of The Trials of White Boy Rick and Literary Brooklyn. He's also written for Wired, GQ, The New York Times, and The Boston Globe. Recently, Evan wrote an article for The New York Times titled The Pain Hustlers that profiles the case of Insys Therapeutics who paid millions of dollars to doctors through a program the company called its Speaker Program. But prosecutors now call it something else, a kickback scheme. We begin by talking about how the sales practices first seen at Purdue Pharma were adopted by others in the industry, despite the fact that Purdue was prosecuted for some of those practices. I think that has to do with, at least to some degree, it has to do with uh, the fact that pharmaceutical companies have escaped some accountability in the past, um, if not entirely, then they've gotten off with penalties that, well, it didn't, like you say, it didn't deter the, the behavior in others. So in the Purdue Pharma case, they paid a hefty fine, um, but they were, they were making so much money on OxyContin that um, they were easily able to survive the fine. Yeah, it was six hundred uh, million, but that's a slap on the wrist for them, isn't it? It's not. It's not going to put them out of business. That's for sure. I think it was a billion dollar a year drug, so that gives you some idea uh, that you can keep going from something like that. And um, two of their executives pled to misdemeanors, but escaped jail time. And um, and then you have the example of Cephalon, which actually uh, it's now been acquired by Teva, but it was a leading competitor of Insys, the company that I've been writing about, and they got in trouble for very similar behavior, um, and no individual was charged, and um, the company paid a fine and similarly recovered just fine. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about Insys Therapeutics. How did you first become aware of them? I believe I first became aware of them in December 2016 when six of their executives were charged, they were indicted in federal court um, on racketeering charges related to um, the marketing of their drug, which is a fentanyl-based medication called Subsys. So these six executives were quite senior, ranging up to the CEO of the company, Michael Babbage. Um, 
and that's when I started reporting the story. And actually, I was still um, reporting it ten months later when the top guy, so to speak, the founder and majority owner of the company, John Kapoor, was also indicted, joining the original six. Um, and that, <laughs> among people I talked to during that year, it was sort of a parlor game of <laughs> will this or won't this reach the very top of the company? You know, will Kapoor emerge unscathed or will he eventually be arrested? And then he was. Um, so they are all facing trial pending in Massachusetts, which is set to begin in January. This all um, unfolded so quickly because Subsys mm. first gained FDA approval for breakthrough cancer pain in 2012. Uh, it was a class of drugs that was known as uh, transmucosal immediate-release fentanyl. By law, that meant that the manufacturer could only recommend its use for cancer treatment. They got the approval, they got their foot in the door, and then they took it from there. So let's talk a little bit about about that. This is a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so the drug um, is, is, is very potent. It's fast-acting, um, and it really was, was intended to be used by cancer patients who are in the terminal stages of the disease, where addiction is less of a concern um, and uh, pain management is primary. And um, so it was approved for, as are all the TERF drugs, um, that's the class they belong to that you mentioned, uh, for only for breakthrough cancer pain. Um, and and that is, that is in reality just a pretty narrow patient population. And uh, People in hospice, um, for instance, that's not a great market, it turns out, for pharmaceutical companies for this drug because normally insurers won't pay for a drug so expensive as this. That's another piece of this puzzle that this drug costs typically thousands of dollars per month. Um, So hospice, they tend to use um, morphine. and so, so that just isn't a very big market. So, um, you know, really, the drug was in fact marketed to a wider group, uh, which is which is typical uh, of that history you talked about, going back to Purdue Pharma. Um, that you know, there's this push and pull. The FDA says, okay, we'll approve this drug for this particular use that the pharmaceutical company applied for. And then that's like someone someone used the term crowbar to me, but that is used as a crowbar to sort of get into the market and then um, get that drug out there to a wide, as wide a group as you can. INSYS got FDA approval for Subsys in 2012 for a very specific use, treatment for breakthrough pain for cancer patients. But they realized that the market was very small, so they came up with a strategy to target doctors willing to prescribe off-label. So off-label prescribing, as it's called, is perfectly legal, um, and so this creates a kind of loophole situation where uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, can't recommend the drug for off-label uses, uh, but, for instance, they walk the line by... um, 
calling on doctors who don't specialize in cancer care, for instance, in Insys's case, and who are known as liberal prescribers of pain medications, and and then they sort of throw up their hands. Well, it's their decision, these doctors. Um, but you know, as a consequence, subsis was prescribed. The amount of times it was prescribed for actual breakthrough cancer pain was something on the order of 20% of the prescriptions and 80% going to other pain patients. And that's because of that culture that was cultivated. It was almost like, as you describe uh, in the uh, in the movie, Glenn Geary, Glenn Ross. Uh, it was the same type of culture, right? Yes, it was. Highly competitive culture. Um, and I think a lot of people don't know what pharmaceutical sales looks like and what it is. And, and, you know, to me in reporting the story, there were a lot of revelations like that, that, you know, you go into the doctor, that person is sort of a figure of authority. They write you a prescription. You don't really question what went into that decision necessarily. Um, and what went into that decision often is relationships with pharmaceutical companies that can be pretty intimate and, uh, you know, these, these doctors are constantly being visited on a daily basis by sales reps for those companies who are clamoring for their business. And they're buying lunch for the doctor and the office staff, and they're giving presentations, and sometimes those presentations really don't amount to much, um, but the doctors are paid for them. And, you know, the sales rep who is assigned to that territory will keep coming back and coming back. And and um, often, you know, the, the hiring skews toward attractive women <laughs> who use their wiles with the doctor. So there's a lot that's sort of going on outside of the exam room that the patient really has no idea about. And I think that's part of this story. So as they recruited more doctors to prescribe subsis off-label, they encountered another hurdle. Only 33% of the prescriptions were being approved for payment by insurance providers. The, the success they were having was in off-label prescribing. Now, the problem with that is that nearly all insurers would, they, it was an expensive drug, so the insurers wanted to know, okay, hey, what's this for? So there was a prior, prior approval process, and they, they, they would only approve it if it was, in fact, for breakthrough cancer pain. Um, so, and sometimes if other, uh, you know, other criteria were met, had the, had the patient tried and failed a cheaper generic version, et cetera. And so in this, um, usually it's the job of the doctor to navigate getting insurance approval for any treatment, including prescribing. Um, but INSYS created an internal unit that kind of took the problem out of the doctor's hands. The doctor would sort of sign here and we'll deal with the insurance. And so then INSYS, this unit would call insurers or pharmacy benefit managers and uh, get the drug approved at, <laughs> at a much higher rate. And uh, they would not identify themselves as employees of INSYS. They would often impersonate the doctor's staff and then they would sometimes just flat out lie about the diagnosis um, and maintain that the cancer had the patient had cancer when they did not, or they would mislead blatantly, <laughs> if not lie. And uh, that was a big contributor to Insys' success, which I should mention 
um, their fortunes really climbed. To get a sense for just how costly a prescription for subsys can become, I found an article in Stat about a woman by the name of Sarah Fuller, a 32-year-old from Stratford, New Jersey, who visited her doctor to discuss switching medications for neck and back pain from a car accident, and she was prescribed subsys. In just over a year, sadly, Sarah was found dead in her bedroom by her fiancé. During the time Sarah was on subsys, Medicare paid more than $250,544 for the subsys she was prescribed. Because the drug was so expensive, in terms of revenue, it was a major drug. It was a top five opioid product by 2015. So as you, as you mentioned, the company, they've used the drug, which was, by the way, it's only branded drug, so it accounted for almost all of its revenue um, in 2012. And then in 2013, they go public, um, and they're the best-performing IPO of the year of 2013, and they're sort of celebrated by Wall Street, and the fortunes climb and climb into 2015. Um, and by then, they're doing you know almost half a billion dollars in sales that year. And so they continue to push on and continue to grow the client base. And and one of the reasons they did that was they would target the high-prescribing doctors, the doctors that really didn't have any reservations about uh, prescribing opioids in a big way. Right, right. That was was a deliberate part of the um, approach was that they would, they knew, and here, here, Here's another example, I think, of something the patient doesn't really understand, is that pharmaceutical companies know exactly what doctors are prescribing what, and they know that by buying that information from uh, companies like IMS Health, which now has a different name, but um, they, and, and then they, you know, send their sales reps to focus on those doctors who are heavily prescribing uh, direct competitor drugs or just opioids in general. And, um, and so they, they really carefully target all their attention. Um, and, it, you know, we've talked about how off-label prescribing is legal and, 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 you know, sometimes it can be really helpful to people. You might, you know, you might, um, some people take, say, the antidepressant Wellbutrin in order to quit smoking. And apparently it works pretty well for people. Um, but when you have, when you're talking about such a powerful and addictive drug, you know, prescribing it, say, for a migraine or, or, or a neck injury is really quite dangerous. And um, by going after the high prescribers, INSYS was really courting that kind of danger. This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. In his New York Times article, Evan wrote about a pain clinic in Mobile, Alabama, run by two physicians, a Dr. Ruin and a Dr. Couch, who averaged one prescription for a controlled substance every four minutes. They also owned the adjacent pharmacy where they would refer patients to get their prescriptions filled. 
they sold more than $570,000 in subsis prescriptions in a single month. And when their shipments of subsis to their pharmacy began exceeding the caps that regulators have on the flow of controlled substances through distributors, doctors Ruin and Couch met with top executives from INSYS to come up with a solution. I asked Evan what happened next. This clinic, which has been described to me as Wolf of Wall Street meets pain management, wow. um, was really like a... a, a, a a money mill as much as a pill mill where these two doctors who have now been convicted of multiple felony counts were finding ways to squeeze every possible dollar out of this clinic and um, became very heedless of the well-being of patients. And uh, there were drug deals for prescription drugs going on in the parking lot and staffers at the clinic knew it. And like you say, there was phenomenal amount of opioid prescribing going on and um but they they're yes their their sort of key innovation was you know most pill mills work by well you you collect cash from the patient for their appointment so it's basically a cash for prescriptions transaction and you you know a lot of them are cash only instead of taking insurance and so they you, you avoid the scrutiny of the insurers and then um, but this particular clinic in Mobile, they didn't. Um, they actually had very few cash patients. But they, um, the pharmacy that was on location of one of their clinics was 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 kind of the key that that they would prescribe these very expensive drugs, including substances, and then um, would end up selling that product to the patients through the pharmacy that they had a financial stake in. Um, I, I, I'm sort of still taken aback by the fact that it is legal for a doctor to own a pharmacy. Um, it isn't legal to refer your patients to a pharmacy that you own. Um, but, you know, think of the ways you can walk that line. Like the doctors can say, uh, instead of referring the patient, they can simply inform the patient that there is a, a pharmacy right down the hall um, and by the way, you know, this drug we're prescribing to you is kind of a specialty drug. It's not stocked in a lot of pharmacies, but we have it, you know. Um, it's amazing and, that that's legal. And, it is. It's amazing. And, yeah, and of course it's convenient for the patient, and, and there you go. So sure. that was a lot of the source of their um, income. And uh, But cutting ahead to what you were getting at, um, Insys really was paying close attention to this pharmacy because it was such a moneymaker for them. And, and to this clinic. And um, so much so that they, the top two executives flew to Mobile, Alabama to have dinner with the doctors because they were concerned about some of the prescribing numbers that, that one of Vince's competitors became, you know, they were writing a lot of that drug. So um, they flew to Mobile and over dinner they struck this deal um, that in that would kind of get around the problems that they were having with supply because um, the distributor was not sending enough of the drug to their pharmacy um, to match the amount of prescribing they were doing. So was that legal? I mean, they so they started shipping directly to the pharmacy, the manufacturer. That's did, right, and cut out the distributor. 
Yes, which which meant that there was, um, yeah, and the, the clear intention was to avoid, as you said, sort of triggering the alarms at the DEA or at the distributors. I mean, the reason the distributors have these caps per month generally is um, because the DEA requires it, that, that if an order goes over a certain amount, that they flag the suspicious order to the DEA and the DEA checks it out. Um, and so they struck this deal to send the drug directly to the pharmacy from Insys. And it turns out it is legal. Uh, it's extremely rare, and it raises the big red flag. Um, and it, it may have had something to do with the doctors finally um, finally coming, kind of um, meeting with scrutiny. Yeah, the authorities finally uh, closed in on uh, Kapoor and... I guess, as you mentioned, six other executives in the company. Where does that stand now? So we now have, um, they they are facing trial in January. They are charged uh, under RICO with racketeering conspiracy, which, which is sort of a big deal because um, that is a potent way of prosecuting people and it can, it can bring long prison sentences. So they're really, I think the prosecution is looking to kind of send a message in this case. And, um, w- one of the seven defendants just last week, um, pleaded guilty and, um, he is now a cooperating witness. And that, that is, that is an interesting development because this particular person, Alec Berlikoff is his name, uh, was the VP of sales. So he's the head of sales. He was the one directing the sales force to really pull out all the stops in forming these relationships with doctors um, and um, directing the so-called speaker program they had that is at issue, uh, is being described and alleged is essentially a kickback scheme to kick um, money back to doctors for prescribing. And he's kind of a pivotal figure in the company, in other words, and he's sort of the number three, I would say, out of the seven who are uh, who were indicted. So now he's cooperating and presumably has quite a bit of information about numbers two and one, and that would be the CEO and the founder, um, John Kapoor. So the plot thickens. <laughs> he seems likely to be a star witness at trial, um, and it also raises the question of whether other defendants will now plead guilty and kind of fold their cards. Um, but I believe there will be a trial. So what lessons can be learned from the Insys Therapeutics story here, Evan? I think, as I've mentioned, I think that, you know, we are we are all patients, right? We are all consumers of medical care. And I think um, one lesson that I've drawn from, from reporting on Insys is that is to kind of educate yourself and be aware of... Um, the practices of pharmaceutical companies, the um, the way that drugs are sold, and um, to be aware that you know doctors are fallible and human, just like anybody else. You know, I think we tend to treat them as authority figures, like I said, and not question them. Um, but um, that I think is really important, especially when it comes to 
treatment for pain. Another question, how were you able to get so close to to the inner workings of this organization to learn so much about it? I mean, it was almost like you did a ride-along with uh, <laughs> Tracy Crane there, one of the sales reps, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it did take some doing. I appreciate the comment. Um, you know, because there was a pen- pending case, uh, and, and still is a pending criminal case. It was difficult to get a lot of people to talk to me, uh, especially people you know involved in the case, prosecution, um, and 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 defense attorneys for the defendants, and a lot of people put me off. Um, and uh, but I was able to kind of talk to some sales reps who uh, you know, and just just looking them up online using using regular online research skills was able to call and it was kind of a, a one by one process where I would talk to one and they said they say, Oh, you should really talk to my coworker so and so, maybe she'd be willing and give me the phone number and um eventually I was talking to uh, I think seven or eight um uh, former employees of the company. Now they were former by this time. There was a lot of turnover and uh, so we're perhaps more free to talk about it. Um, and Tracy Crane turned out to be a really uh, interesting source. She had worked directly with Berlikoff, the one who's just flipped. Um, and uh, that was really that was really a key. And I, you know, I talked. To, it wasn't like I interviewed these people once. Uh, it, it it was an ongoing thing. And in fact, I just spoke to Tracy yesterday and. <laughs> Um, so these were kind of pretty deep relationships and we'd go over their accounts again and again. Um, so I have great appreciation for people who talked about it because, um, for someone like Tracy, it's kind of a bold thing to be on the record with your name, the New York times, um, and kind of speaking out against your old employer. Well, once again, Evan, great to meet you. And, uh, thanks for joining me on this podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. We've been joined today by the New York Times writer and best-selling author, Evan Hughes, who profiled the tactics used by Insys Therapeutics to market their best-selling, highly addictive fentanyl product for breakthrough cancer treatment called Subsys. So what have we learned? Insys gained FDA approval on Subsys for a very specific purpose, which means the manufacturer can only recommend this product to treat cancer pain. Meanwhile, Doctors are legally free to prescribe sepsis to treat any type of pain. Insys incented doctors with established track records of overprescribing opioids to prescribe sepsis off-label, meaning to treat pain at their discretion, by paying them, in some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars annually, to participate in their speaker program. Also, Insys created a special department to take over insurance submissions from subsist prescribing doctors and raised insurance payment approvals from 37% to 87%. And finally, Insys began shipping subsist directly to a top prescribing pharmacy in Mobile, Alabama. And in doing so, they bypassed the system in place to detect those overprescribing in the system. In January, we'll learn the rest of the story as the founder of Insys Therapeutics and six other high-ranking officials, will go on trial for racketeering charges under the RICO Act. If convicted, they could face up to 20 years in prison and the forfeiture of all business interests and gains gleaned from their criminal activity. 
you can bet the rest of the pharmaceutical industry will be watching as this unfolds. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.